Welcome to season two of The Workplace, where we're hot on the trail of what makes great workplace cultures tick and what we can all do to make the ones we work in better. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we'll be talking with Malcolm Gladwell about the human tendency towards trust and why it just might be the linchpin of modern society. Join us after the interview for tangible takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us to our own workplace cultures. Malcolm Gladwell is, well, he's Malcolm Gladwell. He's been named one of the 100 most influential people by Time magazine and is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, which have changed the way we think about decision-making, success, and how ideas spread. His latest book is Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. And as usual, it's the perfect combination of riveting storytelling and subversion of our expectations about the way the world works. He also has a podcast, Revisionist History, now in its third season, which artfully re-examines overlooked and misunderstood events from the past. Malcolm was interviewed by me, and I have to say, despite his imposing presence in the publishing and podcasting worlds, he's wonderfully down-to-earth. Despite being in the middle of a whirlwind press tour, he was willing to step out of his wheelhouse and into the world of workplace culture, which, not surprisingly, he had a lot of insightful thoughts about. Malcolm, it's wonderful to have you here. Welcome to The Workplace. Thank you. Uh, Your new book, your latest book, Talking to Strangers, makes the case that when dealing with people we don't know, most of us, maybe all of us, default to truth. Mm -hmm. Are we making a mistake, or is that trusting nature good for us? No, it's we're not making a mistake. This is the argument of Tim Levine, whose phrase that is, talking uh default to truth he's Mm -hmm. the psychologist who has sort of done a lot of work on deception and it's and he argues i think very persuasively that um if we are people who implicitly trust what others are saying then that makes not just efficient communication possible but um makes it possible for us to engage in productive relationships with people build organizations um you know you cannot be an entrepreneur unless you you know, you jump into bed with all kinds of people you don't know very well and trust them, right? I mean, that's the nature of of productive work. And Levine's point is that that means that you will occasionally be deceived, but you can't let that get in. You can't let that stop you. It's a very, very small price to pay for all the extraordinary benefits that come from trust. Yeah. <laughs> what is the cost of suspicion not defaulting to truth in society? I think some people are being think they're being terribly clever by assuming the worst in strangers. Are they right? Or is it just paranoia? No, the costs are enormous. I mean, first of all, it's it's inefficient. If I go to the store and I second guess the you know, the the total that the cashier gives me, that it's just like if everyone did that, the the line would be out the door, right? Everything would you if you think about it, in order for your life to work you have to engage in this kind of radical act of trust. You can't put your children on a school bus unless you default to truth, right? You don't know. You don't know that the driver is going to the school. You don't know that you, you don't know he could be taking the bus down some, right? I mean, the first time you put your child on that bus, you are taking a big step, and you were saying, I trust that the system will protect my child and get my child where I need to go, Um but there are numerous examples, like 
when you when you buy a house from someone, there's all kinds of, you know, checks and balances and things to make sure that outright fraud is is not going to be permitted. But ultimately, you have to place your trust in the seller and the seller's attorney that things are what they represent them to be, right? It's like... The foundations aren't going to crumble yeah, and crumble the whole thing or, will fall down. You know, there's a, there's a... Nothing works unless we're willing to, peop- to grant people that benefit of the doubt. And, um, and I do think people... Yeah, so I think suspicion and paranoia are, are uh, incorrectly valorized. Hmm. Is defaulting to truth the reason why society works at all? It seems yeah. like fundamental. Yeah. So we're not, if we were, if we did not do that, it's hard to imagine we could have created anything close to the human society we have. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, it's unimaginable um, otherwise. Let's go into the workplace for a second. Uh, what do you think is more dangerous in a workplace setting? Lack of trust or too much trust? Uh, I'm thinking specifically here of whistleblowers. You know, the company has to encourage employees to, you know, trust them, but also question them. It's a weird thing well, to do. I think do. you have to have mechanisms um, that allow people to speak out when something profoundly wrong has happened. Um, mm-hmm. That's not inconsistent with an atmosphere of trust. In fact, Whistleblowing works way better in an environment of trust than in an environment of mistrust. What I say is, you know, a leader would can say to his or her organization, I trust you and I would like you to trust me, but if I of us violate that pact, I also trust that you will make productive use of this particular mechanism of of." of Sounding the alarm, right? That's all part of, I think of all these things of being consistent. What it doesn't, you know, because you also, whistleblowing it also involves a radical act of trust because we're trusting that the whistleblower's motives are pure. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a big leap. I mean, that they're not making these claims out of malice or because, you know, these days now, there are huge monetary awards for some kinds of whistleblowing. Trust comes even more important. We trust that people aren't doing this just, just to kind of, um, line their own pockets. There is really no alternative um, than to overtrust mm. as opposed to undertrust. We have to default to we truth, to. or otherwise everything breaks down a little bit. Yeah, no, <laughs> not just the workplace, but yeah, society itself. Maybe yeah. you're a you have your own workplace mm-hmm. at uh, with your your podcast at, mm-hmm. at the very least. What do you do to foster a, a culture there of not only of, of trust, but, you know, that lets people feel free and empowered and, uh, you know, happy and healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, I am, I'm part of this small, I started a company with my, one of my best friends in January, mm. 12 people. It's um, quite small. small. <laughs> um, and we're small enough that it's the task of creating a trusting environment, I think is much easier in a small company. We don't have procedures and rules, and there's nothing to hide behind. Nothing to hide behind. We don't even have an office. I mean, we have we have an office where some of us go, but we don't have an office big enough for all of us. So we trust that people will do their work, and mm. you know we're we're wide open to new ideas, and we 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 trust that people are excited and motivated, and um, it's like a but it you know it's 
It's also the case, though, that it's easier as well because we are we are attracting people who want to work in that kind of free-flowing environment, um, and that makes it easier to kind of believe in our bets. We make we made a b- bunch of bets on hires. You know, we don't have a lot of money to spend, and in a twelve-person company, one bad hire can be pretty devastating, mm-hmm. right? And we've so far we're twelve for twelve, um, and. A lot of it as well as, you know, I think of my, what I, one of the most valuable employees we have is, um, is my editor, who I initially did not think was a good editor. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, she's actually a genius. I think, now I think she's a genius. Um, we all do. Um, and a lot of that was that I had to, she came very strongly recommended from someone who I really, really, whose judgment I really, really, really respect. And I had to trust in my colleagues' judgment. And I also had to trust in the process that getting to know someone's abilities cannot be done overnight. And your first impressions are often not useful in this regard. And I had to trust in myself to say, you know what, let's give her, let's wait. Wait till you have a sufficient body of experience with her before you render judgment. And um, I did that and I was rewarded because I realized that I had, I was just wrong in the way that I had understood her abilities. Uh, a good editor is worth their weight in gold, gold yes. diamonds, what have you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, we're on the topic of hiring. Uh, I know in your your 2005 book, Blink, you told a story about uh, a symphony reducing gender bias by, oh, basically just by putting a curtain in front of the, uh, the applicants. Um, do you have any advice for people who are hiring in any industry mm-hmm. for reducing their own bias? I mean, there's a curtain, but yeah. what else can they do? Well, I think you need to – I think the issue with bias is not is not that we are in danger of – you don't have a problem with bias when you, uh, when you collect too little information. It's mm-hmm. a problem that comes from collecting too much. So I think that – what people need to do is be a lot more vigilant in getting rid of the sources of information that are unnecessary. So if I'm trying to hire you, I need to ask myself, what are the key things I need to know about you to hire you? And then I need to disregard everything else. So, you know, I, I would say that I, I make people who are applying for a job with me to redact the names of the institutions they attended from mm-hmm. the resume. I don't want it. It's not useful information. You don't care if they went to Harvard. I mean, I'm, and mm-hmm. but the obvious. So there's one bias there that I might be biased in favor of someone who went to a pedigree school. But the other one, the one I'm more concerned about, is the opposite one. That someone who might who I might otherwise be able to clearly see their strengths, I can't see them because I'm distracted by the fact that they went to a school that I don't think is prestigious. That worries me a lot because um, there are a ton of diamonds in the rough, um, and. So it's not useful. And I think actually it's rarely useful. And I think most employers would do better, would do well to follow that example and, and, and call for that information to be. The second thing is do you need to meet them? I'm increasingly of the opinion that we meeting someone is probably overrated as a source of information about their higher worthiness. So everyone has a story about the worst place that they've worked but I want to know about the best place that you've worked. 
Is it where you are right now? Uh, you know, where's well, the best place to work? Well, present company. Let's exclude present company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I worked at the. I had. I worked at the Washington Post for ten years in my twenties. I basically spent my twenties in the Washington Post, and um, I. Uh, it was a fantastic place to work, um, because it was uh, slightly, in the best way, anarchic. It was. You were really free to pursue things you thought were interesting. Um, your editors were demanding without being um, intrusive. Uh, they would accept what you wanted to write without question as long as you made your case. You did your reporting. You handed it on time. You answered their questions. There was very little of the, I don't want you to pursue that. Um, there was trust. There was amazing trust. And you were encouraged to develop areas of expertise. You had a beat. You, you developed an ex, an area, you encouraged to develop an, ex, an area of expertise, and you were their person in that area. Like, you know, if you were the banking person and there was a banking story, that's your story. It's not someone else's story. And that is like a really kind of powerful thing if you're a young reporter, the idea that someone would say, I covered the health bureaucracy at one point. And that was my, that they, you owned I was it. their guy. I owned it. And they backed me and when there were controversies and they, and that was an amazing, really amazing experience. Um, it was a lovely, and I had really, really wonderful managers um, who knew how to, I was very raw when I started and they mentored mm. me in a beautiful way. On a slightly selfish note, I'd like to sneak in a question about questions, uh, podcaster to podcaster. What makes a great question and how do you know when you've asked one? Or do you not know until the answer? Well, if you get an answer that surprises you, that's because either because it's unanticipated or because it's particularly insightful, then you've asked, you probably asked a good question. Um, the questioner is simply responsible for the engagement of the subject, right? That's your job. So the, what the actual questions are is not so important. It's are they motivating the subject to speak, to think, to be engaged in the conversation, and to answer the questions to the best of their ability? That's, so it's more like I use questions. I don't think I ask particularly good questions, but I do think I can keep someone engaged. And that has to do with, I would almost say that listening, your listening skills are as important as your questioning skills in that regard. What's the last book or article or even tweet that you read that's stuck with you? Mm. That's a great question. I read a really interesting essay in The New Yorker just a few days ago by one of my favorite writers, Janet Malcolm. She was uh, reviewing a biography of the Susan Sontag, um, the sort of intellectual um, uh, writer from the... Uh, who died a couple years ago. and But it was really a reflection on how difficult it is to write a biography, to fairly represent someone's life. And the motive, And when you end up, when you write a biography, you talk to all these people who knew the subject and their motives matter greatly in, um, you know, in the kinds of, and you need to take that into account when you, when you weigh what you've been told. Um, anyway, it was just a super, it was just kind of a fascinating I hadn't thought about biography with that, that critically, but it was really, really quite brilliant. In one word, if you can, describe your ideal workplace culture. My ideal workplace? Well, it's the one I described at the mm-hmm. Washington Post. It's uh, 
something where people have a lot of leeway and freedom. Autonomy. Autonomy and where, but where there is um, standards, where there are standards. I mean, I think that's the other thing. The work needs to be a very, very clear message sense that the work needs to be good. And if it's not good, there are consequences. But how you achieve that standard is up to you. That's my idea of an ideal workplace. What technology should we use more? Mm. There are very few I think we should use more. I can only think of ones we should use less. Um, I would say there. I said I would say the answer is none, and that what we should really should be doing is ref- spending more time in reflection, in just in um, examining the contents of our own mind, and mm. less time consuming um, information. Maybe take a hike. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a bit of a hero to a lot of people. Some some podcasters, some writers, journalists. Who are your heroes? Um. Well, I have many. You know, my podcast is really a uh, Virgin's history is really a a compendium of all my heroes. You know, it's. But I don't. I think of unlikely people as heroes, like. You know, I did a podcast on a hero of mine, a guy named John Rock, who was this uh, the guy who helped invent the birth control pill and was a Catholic and tried to square it with his faith. And he's a hero. And then when I was doing that episode, I talked to the two people who wrote his biography, and I loved them. And they're kind of heroes of mine, too. They're just my motivation is to discover people who I can admire. Um, I'm in that kind of the hero discovery business. And I think of the list of the potential list of people that I could admire is is endless. So, I think you'd make a great biographer. Maybe your next book. Maybe I should do that someday. Yeah. Well, Malcolm, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we put big ideas into a traditional Mexican molcajete and grind them into a beautiful, vibrant blend of practical insights you can take with you and implement in your workplace culture. The first is that we all default to truth, and there's nothing wrong with that. Trusting people, even total strangers, isn't a weakness. In fact, it just might be humanity's greatest strength. When we default to truth, a phrase coined by psychologist Tim Levine, we not only make communication more efficient, we make it possible to engage in productive relationships, build successful teams and organizations, and collaborate with our fellow humans. Yes, there is a chance you might occasionally be deceived, but you can't let that stop you. In Malcolm's words, it's a very small price to pay for the extraordinary benefits that come from trust. The second is that overcoming bias in the hiring process should be at the top of every HR department's 2020 goals. Our gut feelings and first impressions about a candidate can easily influence our decision about hiring them. We all need to be vigilant about getting rid of information that's unnecessary. Bias feeds on irrelevant things like name, gender, alma mater, what have you. So we have an obligation and an incentive given the positive implications of a bias-free hiring process to discard these complicating factors and focus on the skills and attributes our ideal candidates will have, and then measure applicants against them, without judgment. 
third is that it's helpful to remember that a lot of the time, we are the strangers. And try as we might, we just aren't very good at accurately communicating what we mean with people who don't know us. Our jokes might not land the way we want them. Our casual, devil-may-care attitude might be misinterpreted. Our carefully rehearsed apologies might not seem as sincere as we think. And men, please, please try to understand that most of your compliments aren't making their day. They're making their day worse. So back off. See your impact, not just your intentions, and give strangers a break. They're just as bad at understanding you as you are at understanding them. That's it for this episode of The Workplace. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was written and produced by yours truly, with editing and original music by Daniel Foster Smith, who also composed our theme song. If you have a burning question about workplace culture, or a story about why your workplace culture is the best or worst, send it to theworkplace at octanner.com. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, visit octanner.com.